Okay. Oh, and we are live. We are live for for the tens of fans. Yeah, uh, all four of them. Five of them. <laughs> you know, no, you know, actually, I used to have between one and five thousand people watching live, and wow. Facebook doesn't think that's amusing because I don't pay them, wow. and so they they don't let they mess with me but many more people watch this than the numbers will allow on facebook but it's on 16 other streaming services so a lot of people are going to see this okay so well, so well, we don't we don't care you. yeah well yeah you know the thing is mark it does it, it just doesn't matter oh that's a different movie that's meatballs i i have to you for me were such an important part of my, just such a huge part of my life. I can't even count the number of times I've seen Animal House. I can't. I can't count. And that's what it was. If you watch it too much, you lose the ability to count. <laughs> yes, you do. Plus, all the wacky weed I was smoking while I was watching it didn't help. That it goes hand in hand. So I've I've become friends with Steve, with the Bish. The Bish uh, has been on this show a couple times, and and um uh. Eliza Roberts, who was uh, in the film, and Grunhilda. Um, no, what did, I can't remember. She had a name like that. She was yeah, one of those girls. We want to dance with your dates. She was yeah. one of those, one of those girls. And I just had to teach that guy who was a who was a, a, a African American gentleman from Eugene. Had to teach him how to talk like a like a, a spade, like a like a, a, a Negro, like a, he had he couldn't do. Do you mind if we dance with your dates with your day? I can't do it either. Landis had to teach him how to do that. Oh According my God. To, yeah. That's so and I've met John and I've talked to John. And you've done you've worked a lot with John, yes? Yeah, I've done five different things with John. From Dream Animal House, Dream On, uh, The Stupids. Dream on. What oh. else? I can't remember. There's like five things, I think. Yeah. Wow. I, I count so John do you as a good friend. Do you have a shorthand with each other? Yeah, I guess so, probably. Yeah, well, the way you do. Yeah, I don't talk to him every day, but we talk, you know, he travels a lot. He and Deborah just travel around the world. But uh, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah, we do, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I, I meant like on the set, is it, it, it like, because he knows you, he knows. Now, you're bouncing up and down. You know, I'm sorry. I'm typing so that oh. people can find us. Okay. And uh, I'll be done in one second. I'm sorry. I'm I'm doing this distracting thing, I'm but I'm just. I'm, I'm, you know, one of the little legs on my computer popped off. Anyway, so I was just doing that so right. to make sure that people find us, and they're finding us now. Sure. Um. So. So. So John. Okay. So. Oh, yeah. So. I want, I, we there, there's. There, <laughs> There's so much to talk about because I know you didn't start out as an actor necessarily. You were an engineering major. Is that true? I went to the University of Michigan as an engineer. My father had been an engineer, was an engineer and a fairly well-known one in the tunnel area and very distant from me. And in order to get to talk to him, I thought, I'll go to college. I'll become an engineer. So we'll have something to talk about. But I got to college and uh, my roommate, my sophomore year, after I'd done a year as an engineer, said, come audition for these plays. The girls are really friendly in the theater. <laughs> and it, was... he was right. Um, and to me, but that may have been just because there were no girls in the engineering department or not recognizable anyway. 
as such, uh, <laughs> but, uh, which would probably get me in a whole lot of trouble. Well, no, uh, back then they didn't let girls in. It's not that they no, couldn't, exactly. right? No, that, that's what the thing. They didn't let them. They weren't looking for them, and and girls were not encouraged to do that. And now, thank goodness, they are. Thank but, goodness uh, they are. Yeah. So then, so I auditioned for plays and got uh, for these three parts of Henry the Sixth, and uh, got cast in fifteen parts and was. Wait a minute! Wait a minute! You started with Shakespeare. Yeah. Without tra without training. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How? I didn't have, I didn't have to do to be or not to be, that is the question. I didn't have to do any long monologues. I didn't have to, I had lines for all 13 of my 15 parts, but they were one line like, um, the, the, the army is coming, we better hide or something like that. You know, just the messenger. I played those kinds of parts. So I could do it without training and I was relatively athletic and I could move and I could, and my voice was strong enough. My voice has always been strong. Now what you hear is a voice that's been trained a lot absolutely um, but um yeah so it uh, yeah so yeah i did I started with shakespeare and that's what i really wanted to do the first five years that i was in new york i refused to do television or movies because i only wanted to do the theater i was a purist as was i i did the same thing i was in tucson for college and i only uh, wanted to do theater and all of my friends got their SAG cards at Old Tucson, but I was too highfalutin. So it took me many more years to get mine. But so, so did you like engineering? What, are you a math? Are you like a, are you a math person? When I took the SATs in high school, I got right. really good, not perfect, not 800 or whatever it is. Right. Like very high, like 95th percentile wow. math. But in verbal, I got like 430 or something like that. When I took the GRE in order to go to graduate school, right? many years in the theater, those numbers had flipped. I was really <gasps> good in verbal and terrible in math. So huh? I, was, I had math skills. Yeah, science skills, math skills. I think I still, my mind still works scientifically. <laughs> I think I approach my work as an actor with a very sort of methodical scientific way of doing it and and thinking how how, how are you an outside in how so how scientific oh, i'm interested in, in this. like the english outside in as opposed to inside out right like what what is being a scientific actor what does that mean I, to me it means using the scientific method where you try 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 and fail, try and fail. Like Samuel Beckett says, fail better, fail better, fail better. I'm all in favor of trying and going over the top and failing. And as long as there's a good director who will tell me, a director named Ron Daniels from England, I did a, a Hamlet with Mark Rylance up in Boston. I, I saw Mark on Broadway, brilliant actor. Oh, did you see him do the, uh, the I saw. I, no, I saw him do the one that he won the Tony for, and I'm spacing what it was. Oh, I can't remember either. But it was, yeah, apparently, I didn't see it, but apparently a great. Brilliant. Uh, yes. Brilliant actor. Um, but the director, Ron Daniels, said to me, I so much love to watch you work because you're so unafraid of being bad. So, so the, the scientific method means you try this and it doesn't work. So you try that. So, you try so I like to experiment and try lots of different things. And also it's just, it's methodical. I would say, in answer to your question, am I in, outside in or inside out? I'm more inside out. I like to immerse myself in the character, in the in the part as much as I can. Read what he might read, 
listen to the kind of music that he might, if there were music that he might listen to. And I don't stay in character all day long. Although I heard when you were filming Animal House, you yeah. you you did some. You didn't hang out with the. I didn't hang out with the Delta House. I didn't. I didn't. I in fact, uh, but John set that up kind of when when I first arrived in Eugene, Oregon, where we shot it. Mm -hmm. um, the Deltas, uh, McGill, uh, Belushi, uh, uh, Jamie Widows, all those guys. P, uh, Peter Riegert had all been there for five days. He brought them in first, uh -huh. and then he brought then he brought me in. And Kevin Bacon came later, and Greg Marmalard came a little later. But when I got there, I got off the plane, went to see the production manager, got my per diem because it's the first thing you do just in case they, <laughs> they made a mistake. At least you got some cash to get out of town. And uh, the production manager said, "John is in the coffee shop on the other side of the parking lot at the roadway in." Mm -hmm. And he'd like to see you. Go on over there. We'll hold your bags here and you can check into your, the room later. So I walked across and I went into, into the coffee shop, which was full. It was around lunchtime or dinner time, and it was a full house. And I saw John and all these people. I knew Peter Riegert from New York. I knew Bruce McGill from New York sitting around in a big booth. Mm -hmm. And I'd met John Belushi before. Um, and oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to tell your your meeting Belushi story in a minute. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> um, sure, I'll do that. Uh, and John said, waved to me and said, "Come on over." So I walk across this room and I get around 15 feet from the table, and Landis says, "That's him. That's Niedermeyer. Get him!" And they started throwing food at me and yelling at me and just generally humiliating me. And so from then on. John, the, John very consciously drew the line between the Deltas mm. and the Omegas and set us up. But the story that I tell all the time, the one that you're probably talking about, is McGill stole a piano from the um, from the roadway in from the lobby. He didn't steal it; he borrowed it, wheeled it across the parking lot, and put it in his room. And his room became party central. That's where everybody went to party. I asked the hotel to move my room so that it was right above his room because I knew that I wasn't going to be going to Party Central, even though I was invited, but I wasn't going to go because that was not what Niedermeyer would do. So I had to move <laughs> my room to right above his. So I had to listen to these guys having fun and playing the guitar, playing the piano, singing, drinking, and whatever else they were doing, uh, whatever act of perversion <laughs> they were committing. Um, and I would stay up all night long, uh, well, till two or three in the morning when they would finally crash polishing my boots and studying my script. Wow. And uh, so that kind of put me in the mood. And I didn't hang I didn't hang out with them. I'd go to John's every once in a while on a Sunday, there'd be a football game with the Bears playing and we would go, everybody would be invited to go out to John's house. We all stayed in the roadway and John stayed in a house to just to sort of give him a little privacy. And he was working hard because he was going back to New York every Thursday to do Saturday Night Live. And he would come back to us late Saturday night or Sunday morning and uh, to Eugene. So I would go there to watch football games and hang out with them. But I didn't uh, I didn't imbibe the way, they, the way they did. Did was was Animal House a vehicle for John to get into movies? It was built around John. He'd already mm -hmm. done a movie. He'd done going south. going south with Jack Nicholson. Oh yeah. my God, a fantastic film. And uh, people always ask me if John, how 
how messed up John was when he did animal. Yeah. He was really straight. He was in great shape. He really worked hard. Wow. He was busy going back and forth. But I also think if you watch going south closely, mm-hmm. you can almost hear the wind whistling through Jack Nicholson's nose because he had <laughs> so much cocaine. And uh, I think that maybe scared John a little bit. <laughs> that, that uh, you could go overboard. It's such a brilliant film, and I don't know a lot of people who've seen it. It, um, I love that film, but well, I think it's a great idea, and there's some great stuff in it. But it's, mm-hmm. I think it's a kind of, a, it's really kind of a mess. I mean, you know, yeah, okay. Well, tell me why. Well, uh, I, I don't remember it well enough to be able to be specific. Mm-hmm. I know Mary Steenburgen Virgin. It's great. John is good, but he's not. He's not inside the movie. He's more. Everybody is sort of over here doing their thing and over here doing their thing and it doesn't all come together and what landis did for animal house was cast actors that were all on very much the same level mm. and and all working actors journey with journeyman actors essentially at the time mm-hmm. and that way and that way john had to work more towards the center uh, uh, Belushi had to work more to the center where everybody else was because that's where we all work. We don't work. And it was a very ensemble. It was a, yeah, it, it was totally ensemble. Yeah, and I and it's one of the things that makes the movie work and last as long as it's lasted and and uh, and be loved as much as it is because there you've got these six to ten characters that are all very individual characters, but they're all working together. They're not not just off in a corner or in the frame sort of doing their own stuff. They're working <laughs> towards the middle. I, I call it when I talk about and teach acting, I talk about it just working towards the middle. The, the magic happens between you and I. The magic doesn't happen where you are or where I am. It happens in airy nothing, as Shakespeare says, uh, in the air between us. That's where. I love that. Okay. so. Did when did you go back to study your craft? Because now you're teaching act. Uh, Bill Hickey, actually, who I know you did, uh, you yeah. worked with, was my acting. Was one of my acting oh, teachers. Oh, down at HB. At HB. Well, Where did you study, and when did you start studying? I well, I studied in college because I kept taking acting classes there, but it wasn't a conservatory the way Yale is or the way. You miss. Umish has one of the best drama departments in the country. My daughter, I took her there to audition. She ended up at Tisch, but that's a great drama department well, at Umish. Well, it's a great musical drama. Movie. Yes, it is. She went for musical, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's what it is. And it really is. It's one of the best ones, mm-hmm. if not the best one in the country. Yes. When I was there in the late 60s, mm-hmm. it had a reputation for being a good theater department because of a man named Valentine Wint, who had been there years before. Mm-hmm. sort of established it a, a reputation for it much the way Alvina Krauss established a reputation for Northwestern as a theater department mm-hmm. Northwestern maintained that reputation whereas the University of Michigan when I was there was more there was a wonderful man named Bill Halstead who ran the department mm-hmm. and his wife Clarabelle Baird who was an actress and a wonderful teacher mm-hmm. actor she worked with Ellis Rabb and the APA in New York and all across the country and they were but they're much more academic, <clears throat> excuse me, much more academically oriented, which is why when they were doing the Henry VI, Shakespeare's Henry VI, they did it uncut. We did all three plays. Wow. Henry VI, part one, part two, and part three. We did them one, one an evening. And then on, 
I think we did it for a month and on every Saturday we did all three of them. So we would start in the wow. morning. Yeah, it was really, it was a great trial by fire. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And so did you continue studying after college? I continued studying after college. I really started studying uh, after I worked. Well, yes, I did study. I studied with Wynne Handman, uh, all these people that you probably know from New mm -hmm. York. Wynne Handman, I worked with him. Uh, who was, oh, uh, Michael Howard, I worked with him. He was a good guy who had come, I think, out of Sandy Meisner's out of the neighborhood playhouse. Mm -hmm. But when I worked with um, Mike Nichols, directed by Mike Nichols in a play called Streamers in Lincoln Center, um, he, he said uh, that I needed to get more training. Mike was tough. I know other people with stories. Mike was very direct, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I ran it. I did that. I, I didn't open it as Billy, a uh, actor named Paul Rudd, not the Paul Rudd mm -hmm. that we all know now, but mm -hmm. another Paul Rudd who I think ended up teaching at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, he did it and I understudied it. Mike came in and saw an understudy rehearsal. And when Paul Rudd said, I have to leave to do Henry V, he said Metcalf and everybody wanted to do it. They were looking at Michael Moriarty, looking at Jeff mm -hmm. Bridges, uh, but he said, ask me to do it. I'd been understudying and I'd playing a small part in it. So I'd been all through. And Mike and I had a, we both like to be the smartest person in the room. <laughs> he is or was the smartest person in the room always. I like to be. So, um, so we were had a kind of a contention. You have no problem here doing that, Mark. Being the smartest person in the room. No problem. Oh, I don't know. You, well, I won't talk. I won't talk. Um, the, uh, but I ran into Mike after a couple of years after I'd done uh, uh, streamers with him at uh, Kate Burton's wedding uh, when she married, I can't remember his name, Michael. Can't you his name. did, you did Romeo and Juliet with Kate. Yeah, We're going to talk about that too. All right. Sure. I'm interrupting your, your, right. but anyway, sorry. anyway, Mike, I ran into Mike. I said, hi, Mike, how are you? He said, oh, hi, I was just talking about you. I said, oh yeah, oh, good. Because it's always nice when people like Mike Nichols talk about you. I said, what were you saying? He said, well, I was telling him about when I came back to see streamers after i'd been after you'd been doing it for a couple a month or two and uh i remember coming up to you and saying don't just walk around and say the lines and usher can do that and i said oh you were telling people oh. that story i said did, did you use my name and he said oh of course i used your name <laughs> so i thought okay. Wow. okay i do remember wow. he, he did actually say that but he mike was great he said something to me that I still use, uh, he said, uh, you're an actor, act like you're a good one. And uh, which I think he meant as a put down, but it actually, it helps, it works. I mean, if you're stuck and you don't know quite what to do, you think, what would, uh, what would Paul Muni do? Or what would uh, Humphrey Bogart do? Or how would uh, Robert De Niro handle this particular moment, this scene? Wow. So as an actor in a scene working with Mike Nichols, was that an extraordinary experience? Was it a unique? I assume it was a unique experience. Totally unique experience. I've never met another director who worked the way he did. It was really, it was great. We'd all show up at 10 in the morning to start mm -hmm. rehearsal. Um, Mike would come in. He had alopecia, as you may or may not know. Uh, so his, sometimes his eyebrows were askew. 
and he would, we would work for 20 minutes and then he would go to the bathroom, he'd come back and everything would be in the right place. All the different appliances would be in the right place. And we would work some more. And the way the process was, we would do a scene and Mike would say, and Mike would draw us all around. We'd all sit around and he would tell a story. It's just a story about Elaine May. I mean, I remember one story he said, uh, Elaine called me, no, I called Elaine when an exorcist opened because there were lines around the block and I was feeling really terrible. And I called Elaine to get some sympathy and because they had asked me to do it. They'd asked Mike to, to direct uh, The Exorcist and he turned it down. Wow. And Elaine May said, and I'm playing Mike Nichols now, not doing his accent, mm -hmm. but uh, my, Elaine, I, I asked, so I asked Elaine, what, what, how should I feel about this? And Elaine said, Mike, think of it this way. If you directed it, there wouldn't be lines around the block. <laughs> So I guess they were well suited for each other. Exactly. Yeah. No, they were perfect for each other. Exactly. They were, in Mike's old words, he said he's the most pathetic person uh, he'd ever met. But uh, so he would tell a story. He would just tell a story, and then he'd say, "Okay, let's try it again." So we'd go up and try the scene again, and somehow, magically, it was better. Wow. And I think what happened was sometimes the the story. You could apply what was in the story, the subtext of the story, the moral of the story, the gist of the story. You could apply that to what you were working on in the scene, but more often than not, you couldn't. It was just a question of sitting and relaxing and calming down and listening to a master storyteller tell a story and then going and telling a story yourself. Now, just being inspired. It was, yeah, it's, it's being inspired, but in a very subtle, quiet, non you know without blowing your own horn or anything like that way and it that's was kind whole, of beautiful it was it was wonderful and it was extraordinary because then when we started previews and i did i don't think during rehearsal i ever he heard him give a note a specific note but once we started previews and we did a like a month of previews wow it was new house mitzi new house theater lincoln center it was it's, it's may as well have been broadway so we did some previews and uh, then he got really specific because then he was listening to it with an audience. And mm. he would say things like, if you just, if you emphasize this word rather than that word, you'll get the laugh. And he did it with David Rabe, the, the writer who was mm -hmm. there too. And mm -hmm. he would say, we need to change, take the subject of this sentence and make it the predicate and put the, and the predicate in the front and then you'll get the laugh. And he was such, that's, and that's to us in a sense, that's also what I meant flipping back to when we were talking about a scientific approach. It was so precisely scientific and understood mm. the craft and the medium and how comedy works and how drama works that uh, it, was, it was a lesson. I mean, it wasn't like a lesson you could write down and take notes, but it soaked in. How yeah, that that's being schooled. I mean, working with yeah. Mike Nichols, that's being schooled. It was. Wow. I to school, and I started with him because he was the one that said, go see Uda, tell her I sent you. And I went down and studied with Uda. And Herbert was already a fan of mine because he'd seen mm. me do. Herbert gave me one of the best compliments I've ever had. He, he, uh, he saw me do The Tempest at Lincoln Center also when uh, Sam Wat with Sam Waterston as Prospero which opened when Joe Papp took over Lincoln Center and he did uh, Three Penny Opera upstairs with Raoul and he did uh, a Shakespeare. We, we, he was going to do all Shakespeare in, wow. the, in the Newhouse Theater downstairs. 
and um, but Herbert uh, met me and said, I do three imitations. I do Alfred Lunt and I do Sir Laurence Olivier and I do you. <laughs> he'd only ever seen me in The Tempest, but I did this in this when Prospero casts a spell on Ferdinand and he sort of suspended animation. I made all these little sounds. I just organically made, oh, oh, I made these sounds and Herbert loved it. Uh, other purist, purist Shakespeare said, "You're you're messing with the with the rhythm, with the iams by making these sounds." Because that, but I wasn't really. They were still part of the iambic pentameter. I mean, they were just. I was just building my own. That's all. But it, <laughs> that was a nice compliment for Herbert to give me. Bless what him. a lovely thing! Somebody asked if you ever did Midsummer. Yes, I did Midsummer with uh, Janet Zarish, who runs NYU Tisch for your daughter, probably was there uh, and and who else john bowman and a bunch of people steve zuckerman who's a television director big television director now directed we did it off broadway it was fun i did oberon and theseus did both parts and did oberon sort of like a uh jim uh, naked from the top up or from the waist up and uh, uh i was pretty then and uh long <laughs> hair and sort of jim morrison like rock and roll and had a, a great uh my puck was a woman whose name I can't remember, but we had a great, very kind of flirtatious sexual relationship. But yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I did, I did the dream. So, so tell me about the Romeo and Juliet. I also heard you have a vision for a way you could do it again. But uh, when did you do Romeo and Juliet with Kate Burton? I don't know what year it was. It might, it might have been 70. I mean, you had to be very young because that's a uh, very young, he's young. A young guy. Right? He's a young guy. Uh, 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 yeah, although Margot Fontaine did it as a ballet when she was 42 years old, and it's wow. still one of the most beautiful Juliets I think I've ever seen. It, if you ever get a chance to see it on uh, video, I think it's on so, so long ago, it was probably on Kinescope. But it's, well, you uh, know, Olivia Hussey watches this show sometimes, oh, uh, yeah. who was the most beautiful Juliet I think there ever was, and Zeffirelli's. Zeffirelli's. I was just mm -hmm. talking about Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet because that's the best Mercutio that I've ever seen because it's oh. the whole time and only time I think that I've ever seen where you could really feel the homoerotic tension between Romeo and Mercutio that Mercutio's whole drive in life is that he just thinks Romeo is uh Romeo is Romeo exactly. <laughs> he's in love with Romeo but at a time and in a place where you couldn't sort of just grab him and kiss him on the lips um but he'd like to and uh, and you see that it's Peter McHenry, I think, or John McHenry, one of the McHenry. I don't characters. remember his name, but boy, he's unforgettable. I he's seared yeah. in my brain. Yeah, no, it's so it's such it's a great great performance. Yeah, I did it with Kate outdoors at the Rotunda, 79th Street Boat Basin in Riverside oh, yes. Park, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a really it was a really fun production. We okay, wait, I have to ask you this: How do you do Shakespeare in an environment like that where there are so many distractions? Yeah. How 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 do you keep an audience? How do you keep their attention in that kind of environment? Well, you do do you do what you do, even if they're not there. You just focus as strong much as you can on the character and on the words and on the intent, uh, the needs and wants of the of the character and the needs and wants of the other characters. And you just you just dial it up, make it as intense as possible, and you don't make mm -hmm. it louder. 
You mm-hmm. just make it intense. And if, mm-hmm. if that if that's there, it will compel the audience to watch you. Now, it won't compel the drunks who are wandering around. But the rotunda there is is mm-hmm. cars come off the West Side Highway and right. circle there. And a lot of people drove. This was in, must have been in the 80s, early 80s. A lot of people uh, drunk and on drugs, various mm-hmm. kinds of drugs, sort of circle. And one time when I'm bemoaning my, my the death of my one, one true love, when, when Romeo comes back and is in the, in the crypt and Juliet's body there, and he doesn't know that she's just been drugged and will wake up and he takes his own life. But some, some drunk up at the top of the rotunda said, uh, just lift up her skirt and fuck her. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. Yes, you can say that. <laughs> but, um, I, and so the, the audience <laughs> kind of hushed at first, but they were quite wrapped at this tragic scene that was taking place. <laughs> and they were hushed, and then they laughed. And then so I just hold for the laugh. And when you can be heard, then go back in. Don't try to quiet. You can quiet a laugh with a gesture and with your voice, if you have a really big voice, but a, a, a wrong laugh. So, but yeah. So it was, it's, it's a lot of distraction, but it adds to, it adds to your concentration. That's what you just Oh, I bet that's so. I bet that's so. So after doing so much theater, how did you segue to, because Animal House wasn't your very first. There was something no. before Animal House. I did uh, the f- feature that I'd done before. It was a f- film called Julia directed by Fred Zinnemann. Yes. Who, uh, and I can't remember the producer's name, Steve Roth. I think I can't remember but he had seen me do Billy in, in uh, or I was doing it at the time. I saw me do mm-hmm. Billy at Lincoln Center mm-hmm. in streamers and uh, asked me to come in. And it was, I thought all movies were gonna be like this. I just, I went and met him at the Sherry Netherlands and uh, the producer really liked me. And he said, would you come back next week? I didn't have to audition. I didn't wow. have to wow. come back and meet Fred Zinnemann. Mm-hmm. And I, I, up until that time, I had pretty much said no to most movies and television, all to movies and television, except I had done a short film with B. Strait and Jessica Harper called The Garden Party. And it was from a Catherine Mansfield short story. And I knew who B. Strait was. And I knew who Catherine Mansfield was, a wonderful writer. And mm-hmm. I thought I would, and it was shot in Vermont, in Woodstock, Vermont. And I thought, well, I'll do that one. That was the first one. And then, uh, then Julia came along and you don't say no to Fred Zinnemann. I mean, he directed some of the great movies and I was aware that he directed, and I'm gonna really sound arrogant here. He directed Marlon Brando in his first film. He directed Monty Clift in his first film. Wow. Not the the first film that anybody saw Monty Clift in because that was Red River, but he did in, uh, what was he called? The Trial, I think. The Zinnemann had directed Clift in he wow. shot it before they shot it before they shot Red River. But I thought, okay, I could I'll, I can't <laughs> he's I'll, good with beginners. Yeah. yeah <laughs> talk about going to school. Wow. And it was with Jane Fonda and Vanessa Redgrave. And, and Wonderful film. Mm-hmm. It's a good film. I'm not in it anymore. Uh, I got cut out. I only had I had a one scene part, about a four-minute scene with Jane at the very top of the film. And it was funny because when I read it, I said, well, they can't cut me out because uh, my scene is the scene that sort of sets up, sets in motion her traveling and finding Julia because mm-hmm. I'm Julia's, I play Julia's 
cousin and she asks me about Julia. It's just flash, it's a flash forward. And then the whole rest of the movie flashed back from that. But when they put it together, Gareth Wigan at 20th Century Fox, this is what uh, Fred Zinnemann called me and told me when he called me 10, five days before it opened to tell me that I was not gonna be in it anymore. My name would be in the credits and my name still is in the end credits. It was in the crawl at the beginning. Um, but uh, he told me that, he said, Gareth Wigan says it has to be 20 minutes shorter. So we had to cut your scene. They also cut about half of what Meryl Streep had done because it was Meryl's first movie too. Wow. And I think John Glover's first movie. Wow. So uh, Fred was giving a lot of people a good start, but uh, Meryl turned out to be the Marlon Brando of that film. <laughs> He's had a really big career and I've had a man, okay career. Well, but you've had the career that you've chosen to a large part, what you've chosen. I have chosen it and, and, and I accept responsibility for it. There's a documentary film that a wonderful woman named Vera Brunner Sung made about me where I talk a lot about being typecast as Niedermeyer because I did Niedermeyer early on. The next film after Julia, just a year later, less than a year later was uh, Animal House. And, uh, and then they asked me to do the Twisted Sister videos. Okay, wait, let, let's go. We're going to talk about that because we have a mutual friend. But okay, how did you get Animal House? Uh, did you, obviously, you had to audition for that, I assume. I did. I didn't. I didn't actually have to. I had, had uh, to what? No, I mean, I had to go meet John Landis. I went yeah. to meet John. Mm -hmm. I was called, I was told to audition, to read the script and to audition for the Tim Matheson part for Otter. Oh, wow. And I thought, this will be great. He gets all the girls. It'll be fun for me. <laughs> um, and I went in. And as soon as I walked into the room, John looked at me and he said, do you know how to ride? And I said, I was practically born on a horse. My <laughs> mother's water broke when she was on a trail road and my, trail ride with my father in our ranch in Montana. And off the horse. And my father delivered me in the shade of the horse. He delivered cows. He could, why couldn't he deliver me? We got back on the horse and rode in. And Landis looked at me and said, yeah, right. I told him five more lies about how I knew how to ride and had been riding all my life. And uh, he called me the next day and said, I want you to do this part. I never had to read the script for him or anything. I want you to do this part. It's impossible you got your first two films without a, without reading a script. I, I, I know. Wow. I know. And no, it was it was great. I thought it was all going to be like that. Not, <laughs> consequently, I hate auditioning. I think most actors hate auditioning. Although mm -hmm. some actors actually say they love auditioning. Wow. But I don't think they're very good actors. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hate auditioning. So he called you the next day. He called me the next day and said, uh, I want you to do this part. And I said, great, John, do you think you can get some money out of Universal so I can learn how to ride? <laughs> I'd, I'd ridden horses, but I didn't literally know how to ride. And I wanted to know how to ride. I wanted to know how to ride English. I wanted to control the horse um, mm -hmm. more precisely the way you do in English. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to do, I, I mean, as I researched it and learned how to ride, I wanted, I made them get me a, a McClellan saddle rather than a Western saddle or an English saddle. McClellan saddle is a saddle uh, designed by General George McClellan from during the Civil War. It has a, a sort of a high wooden brace in the front instead of a pommel and a high wooden thing in the back. So it sort of keeps you upright, keeps your posture up. And it was a military design. And so I wanted that. And uh, 
what else did I, oh, what else did writing teach me? But I just, and then when I got to Eugene and was rehearsing, since I wasn't hanging out with the guys and partying, I found a ranch on the outskirts of Eugene along the Mackenzie River, where they had five or six horses that they weren't you weren't riding. They used them in the spring to uh, bring the cattle down, uh, take the cattle up into the mountains for summer grazing. And then they used them in the fall to bring them back down for the winter. And so mm -hmm. these, horse, when you don't ride a horse for a period of time, uh, they, they, don't, they like not being ridden and they go wild. <laughs> I went out to these people and said, uh, Can I, would you let me ride your horses? I'm making this movie and I need to ride. And they say, sure, the barn's over there. There's tack in there, the horses out there. If you can go get them. So I had to, I learned a lot about horses, luring those horses in so I could throw a halter on them and then tack them up and go riding with them. But it was great. Kept me busy when I, on days I wasn't working. Wow. And so how much of Nederlander was your, ne I'm the Niederlander Jerry, Jerry, Jerry Niederlander. I know it's Niedermeyer. I, I, yes, sorry. No, you, just, um, you went to Broadway. I went to Broadway. Um, how much of Niedermeyer was your, like the pledge pin, the spitting thing, how much of that was yours? How much of that did John direct you to? Well, he didn't have to direct too much. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It, had been, it was written so well mm -hmm. that when you put a couple of plosives like that together, is that a pledge pin on your uniform? Any actor, stage actor, perhaps only a stage actor, mm. understands that, that, that those are plosives and those are great explosive consonant sounds uh, and it's, they explode and when you're if you're talking i mean the more you spit the better you speak was the way i was taught <laughs> and, and when i was doing shakespeare in college uh i was doing shakespeare with a guy named richard bergwin who was my one of my teachers he was doing coriolanus and i was doing what's the guy's name i can't remember his name right now sort of his his second in command and bergwin was this big guy and very bombastic actor and uh he spit all the time and i when we were in front of an audience he spit on me and i flinched and why and he slapped me right on stage in front of people and afterwards when we were off stage he said if i spit on you never flinch the more you spit the better you speak he's very precise diction and precise language so, uh, and the upfront- Woody Allen spit all over me in, uh, I saw Woody Allen and played against Sam when I was about 13 on Broadway and I was in the front row and he spit all over me. So I guess he was just being a wonderful actor. He was being a wonderful <laughs> actor. He was projecting. That's what you do if you're projecting in the theater, you've got to get it out there and your fluids are flowing because you're uh, excited. So, yeah, yeah. So, Okay, so let's talk about. I, I'm not going to keep you. I'm going to. I'm going to be honorable to the hour. But I, there's so much more that I want to ask you. But let's talk about that. Okay, so before we leave Animal House, yeah, I have talked to the Bish about it. I've talked to Eliza Roberts about it. Did you know that you were in something that was going to? Did you have any idea of what was about to happen? No, I. I first of all, I didn't think that way. I didn't mm -hmm. really start thinking about acting as a thing that one did for a career until probably a little bit after Animal House. Really? It was just a lot of fun. And well, how, what, what, what did you think was going to be your career if not acting till? Well, 
when we were young and coming up in New York, we didn't really think about career or talk about career. Or I didn't. And the people I hung out with, John Hurd, Jimmy Woods, those people. Well, Jimmy Woods was thinking about his career all the time. But uh, <laughs> we, we did uh, a great movie with John Hurd. Uh, I did. Chili. Oh, I produced Chili. You produced. And, and acted in it. Yeah. Yeah, John was one of my best. That's, we could do a whole hour and a half of that. I'm talking about Chili Sings of Winter. In fact, anybody Love who's, that movie. This, who's in New York, they're doing a memorial for Joan Micklin Silver at the some theater in New York uh, at the 29th of May, I think it is, that I can't go to, but uh, Joan just died recently. And she mm -hmm. was one of, she really was a kind of an un... Uh, 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 in the history of women working in the cinema, and we're really, it's all about that right now, which is really mm -hmm. good. But Joan was really breaking that ground a long time ago in the 80s, uh, in the late 70s and 80s with Hester Street, Chili Scenes of Winter, which was a studio picture that she mm -hmm. wrote and directed. Uh, and then she did, you know, all Crossing to Lancey and lots of other more independent. All films. wonderful films, yeah. yeah. All yeah. really good, really sensitive, really smart films. Um, how did we get off on Joan Silver? I, um, oh, I had, John we, we were talking John about John. We were talking about uh, Chili Scenes of Winter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how that came up. But anyway, um, we were talking. Oh, I was asking you if you had any idea that Animal House was going to. No. Did, did we be talking about it 44, almost 45 years later? No, I didn't. According to Landis, John Belushi came to him and said, this movie is going to make so much money. And you're going to be around for a long time. And John Vernon came to him, who plays Dean Wormer, mm -hmm. uh, came to him and said the same thing. This movie is going to, and, and John Vernon apparently was really serious. This movie is so important. It's really important. I hope you know how important this movie is, according to Landis. That's what he said. So they, they, they thought it would be big. Um, I certainly didn't. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about I was thought about doing it the best I could. And however, a movie, and you've got to release in a theater you you're there when the curtain goes up you're on stage and you're on stage alone or you're on stage with your scene partner and you it's in your hands and so whether it's good or bad is determined by you but in the movies you and television you learn pretty quickly that they can do anything they want with your performance once they right it. and uh they can shoot and get somebody else to come in and lip and do your lines and they can shoot you all from, they can do all your over the shoulder shots. You don't ever see your lips moving. They can do lots of crazy things. So you just have to release whether or not it's good. So I didn't think about whether it would be good or not. I just wanted to make my scenes good and my, my part good and have fun doing it. But so, no, I didn't think, I didn't think it was going to be. Were you, it looks like it would, you know the Donald Sutherland story? Donald Sutherland. No, but I love when he was wearing the sweater and picked up his <laughs> Yes. Well, yeah, that's a whole story with he and Karen Allen. Where, uh, but John called, John, Universal insisted that there be a movie star in it. And, they, and John had managed to dodge them all. Wow. Because he didn't want any movie stars in it. And he didn't want any Saturday Night Live people in it because he didn't oh. want John to have that kind of out. Was, was, wasn't that a thing that they wanted to cast other members of Saturday Night Live in the film? Universal wanted to put Chevy in the, in the Matheson part, uh, uh, Danny Aykroyd in, uh, I think, in the D-Day part. 
yeah, they, they wanted to put a lot of, because they, they didn't like the film, they didn't like the script, and they wanted, uh, uh, they wanted to beef it up. So Saturday Night Live was beginning to hit, so let's put a lot of, let's make it a Saturday Night Live movie. Mm. Uh, but Landis very specifically wanted, just like I said before, wanted journeyman actors, working mm. actors, actors who worked, at, did it as a craft, not as a career. Right. Um, and uh, not not as for fame, but just for the because they liked it, and and that's that's what that that's how that's what he did. That's how it worked. And now I've forgotten your question. So were you were going to tell me the Donald the Donald Sutherland story, how oh, he landed okay. on so, Donald. So that's right. They uh, so Universal finally said put it put their foot down and said you've got to put a movie star in it. Well, John Landis knew Donald Sutherland because he'd done he'd been a stuntman and a gopher on Dirty dozen in Romania or wherever they shot that so and stayed in touch with him and so he knew that Donald was in San Francisco shooting Invasion of the Body Snatchers <laughs> the remake of the old Kevin McCarthy. it was a great that his remake was great yeah was really great yeah and as he said Donald you've got to come up here they won't let me make this movie unless I put a movie star in it I want you to be the movie star it's this part and we can let we'll play with we'll write some bits for you it's really a fun part. He's a professor. You smoke dope with the guys. And uh, Southern said, all right, can you get me up there on a Friday, shoot me on Friday and Saturday and get me back here on, on Sunday? I can get a Friday off. We're not shooting Saturday and Sunday. So, so Sutherland was just there for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Got Friday really? Off. Yeah. And he said, uh, but you're going to pay me, right? And Landa said, well, we can't pay you very much. We could give you, I think it was $10,000 a day. Or we could give you a scale like everybody else is working for and you can get it, but I'll give you a piece of the movie. Oh, and Sutherland oh. said, I'll take the $10,000. Oh. Apparently somebody did the math. He might've done the math himself, but apparently he would have made what, like $7 million or something. Holy like that, moly. If or more than that, if he'd taken a piece of it. So that's. Wow. Wow. So at what point. None of us know. What, oh, so this is what I want to ask. So obviously the Delta guys were having a ball, not yeah. only on screen, but I'm sure they were having a ball. Were you, was it fun for you to film when you were on the other side of that? Yeah, I took advantage of, I mean, yeah, I took advantage of being a movie star in this little hippie town with a university in it. And there were a lot of co-eds doing extras and, and they were interested in, hanging out with the people in the movie. So I took advantage of all of that. And I had a great time. My brother was running the Excelsior Cafe, which was a really great and early version of the farm to table kind of. Oh, wow. Um, that was there in those days. And my brother was the general manager there. So I hung out there with him and would meet him. And so, and I rode horses. Yeah, it was great. And, the, and the, even though I stayed separate, I was still, I was still, they, they were my friends and I worked with them. So we were colleagues and we, 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 we just played, we acted, the, we acted those parts when we were together. So yeah, it was great fun. It was really fun. I don't think I've had that much fun on a movie since. I can't imagine that there could be more fun than that. <laughs> was yeah. there, was there a lot of pot smoking and drug doing and there all? There was a lot. Well, I would not for me. I was, I didn't, I just, I barely drank tea. Um, <laughs> well, uh, there was a lot of booze and there mm -hmm. was a lot of pot smoking and there was 
um, I think probably a fair amount of cocaine. Oh yeah, it was the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the late 70s. -hmm. And we were, you know, Landis also wisely insisted that we, with Universal, that we shoot it on location. He didn't want to shoot it close to home because he didn't want the guys in suits coming and looking over his shoulder. Oh, that was wise. There's a good story about uh, how they chose Eugene, Oregon, they had tried like 250, the legend is 250 different colleges turned it down and said, no, because <laughs> we don't like this script. The guy who was in charge of those decisions at University of Oregon had turned down the graduate when they <gasps> came to him and asked him if they could shoot on this campus. And he swore to himself then when he saw the graduate, saw what it began, that he would never do that again. So he said, yes. <laughs> uh, regretting it soon afterwards <laughs> but then by the end of the shoot he was fine with it and because and by when it became such a legend now they do tours in New oh. of animal house landmarks and things like that how soon did it how soon did it hit for you guys how, because i know i saw it immediately and saw it like 30 times how, how soon did did you know did you all know what was happening Almost immediately, the bu- mm-hmm. the buzz got really big on it after they'd done a t- test screening. Universal still didn't like it, still didn't mm-hmm. trust it, didn't know what to do with it, mm-hmm. didn't know how to release it. And they did a test screening in Denver. It happened to be on the same weekend that there was a uh, a Greek convention. The Greeks being the fraternities, right? Lots and lots of fraternity people in town. They were all invited to come see. They were given a chance to come see this screening of this movie and a bunch of them came so of course they got it right away <laughs> and laughed so much that you couldn't hear half the jokes and uh and and uh landis went to the phone or so i think is how he tells the story he called ned tannen who was the head of universal he said listen ten this and this ned and he held the phone up while they're laughing hysterically and he said do you like it now <laughs> or something like that. Landis will say that that's not the story, but uh, because that's how that's our our shorthand. I tell a story, Landis says, No, he's wrong, (laughs) tells it his own way. But um, it would that that sort of turned Universal around. They suddenly then they realized that they had a hit, they knew how to market it, and and they went ahead with it. And uh, by the time it showed at this cast and crew screening in Westwood, I took my good friend Joan Hackett. At the time. Oh, Joan Hackett. Yeah, she was great. Mm. She was great. She and I had been friends. We'd worked on the Equal Rights Amendment together and just were friends through a woman named Connie Freiberg, who you may know, mm-hmm. um, who's out there still. But um, as we came out, I said, Joan, I'm, I'm kind of sorry. I This movie's kind of derogatory towards women. And uh, Joan said, Mark, this movie's derogatory towards everybody. It's going to be a huge hit. <laughs> So she How knows. True we, is that? How we knew true? pretty soon, pretty quickly. The buzz got big after that screening in in Denver, and then they released it, and it was on the cover of Toga's. Where Toga parties were on the cover of Time Magazine within a couple of months, and it was. And people stopped me in the East Village when I'd walk to the uh, to the subway from my apartment between St. Mark's and First Avenue. Walk up St. Mark's to get the subway at. Uh, at eight, uh, the, the, I can't remember the name and the number of the train, the BMT up to uptown. The, um, the, one, the one, the, was yeah, it the one? The one or the two, yeah. I can't remember. Yeah. But, uh, and uh, people would say, 
you're worthless and weak. Or else they would, in 80, after 84, when I did the Twisted Sister video, they would say things like, what do you want to do with your life? And I couldn't figure out what they were talking, why they were being so mean to me. These are homeless people and just street people. And why did they, <laughs> I was on to the next thing. I was producing a movie, Chili Seems a Winter, or I was doing a play or something. And uh, I was thinking about that. I wasn't, I didn't even remember that these were lines from this movie. It wasn't until a friend, I was telling a friend of mine how depressed I was because there's this one guy who every time I passed him, he would say, you're worthless and weak. And I would say, how, how does he know? And why that's does he his, say it out loud? That's hysterical. You idiot. It's from a line from that movie Animal House. He saw the movie Animal House and he recognized it. I tend to sort of a little tunnel vision when I work. That's hysterical. So so after you so after Animal House broke, I imagine your career changed turned on a dime. Were you I'm I'm going to I'm I'm get we're getting close and I have to ask you about Twisted Sister and Buffy. So uh did you still not have to audition for things after that? Were you still just getting things? No, I was getting offered things, but I turned them all down and said I'm finally said I'm not working as an actor now because Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn and I had formed a group, a, a threesome, basically, uh, in New York, right before I went to do Animal House. Uh, we were, Griffin was my best friend, Amy was a girlfriend of sorts, and, uh, and we had bought, a, we bought the rights to a book named Chilly Scenes of Winter by Ann Beattie, uh, who was a New Yorker short story writer, and a brilliant writer. And we, we were going to produce this movie. So as soon as I got to Hollywood after. Ann Beattie? Ann Beattie. Yeah. I know Ann Beattie. No, yes. Ann, you're thinking of Ann Beats, the writer for Saturday Night Live. Yes, I am. You're right. Uh, Sorry. This is B-E-A-T-T-I-E. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people make that mistake. That's all right. Uh, so I pretty much stopped acting to, in order to produce this movie. Because when we decided to really produce it, we knew, I knew, and Amy knew, and Griffin knew that that's what we had to do, and just that. So mm -hmm. I turned down a television series that they wanted me to do. I turned down Delta House because I didn't want to do go back to Animal House. I'd mm -hmm. done that and didn't. And right. I, I turned down a lot of stuff. So I really quit acting for two years after Animal House came out and was big. So I didn't get a chance to really take advantage of the that big burn, that heat that you get. Right. When you're in a hit, uh, it was all gone by now. My dog's here. He wants to say hello. I can't I see him. I know. Here, wait. Yeah. Can you see him now? Oh, yeah. What's his name? Hi there. Oh, he's looking right in the camera. Hi yeah, there, he likes him. Hi Look there, handsome. You. Look at him. His name is Mike. Mike is cool. Yeah. Um, his full AKC name is Mike RBG. Right. <laughs> we picked him up on the day that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Oh. We gave him her name, right? He's a good uh, so speaking of that, how has COVID, I'm all over the place with you, but we only have a few minutes left, so I want to get this all in. How has COVID impacted, how, how COVID crazy, I'm COVID crazy. How has COVID impacted your life? How are you, what have you done the last two years? What, how have you lived? I was living at Ohio State University. I, I kind of follow my son around or he follows me. I follow mm -hmm. him around. And he was taking a writing a master's at Ohio State University, and I was living there in Columbus in an apartment when COVID hit. I was mm. just about to. I was 
I built a dance with a beautiful woman named Chloe Napoletano. And this, she and I, she was, she, what, 25, she's 26 now, I guess, 27 now. And we'd made this wonderful dance and we were supposed to perform it at the Wexner Art Center and uh, um, COVID hit and we couldn't. And my son got accepted at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland. So I packed everything up in a trunk and in the middle of, or in June, it started and we started paying attention to it in March. In, right. June, in the middle of it, we drove across country with all our worldly goods and, and set up a household in, in Portland. And I've done pretty much nothing except, well, I did, I've written a book about my son, my brother. My, it's my, about my son and my brother. Uh, my brother committed suicide when he was 46 after a, oh, I'm so uh, sorry. 46 years of very difficult, but trying hard life. And I'm trying to write a book, trying to solve the mystery to me of how you get from being in a perfect, almost Frank Capra universe of Webster Groves, Missouri, to uh, on your knees in the backyard of your father's house with a gun to the back of your head. And um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that in those days, in the 50s and 60s, he was born in 52. People did, we didn't have the language for uh, bipolar. We didn't have mm -hmm. the language for Asperger's or for on the spectrum or neurodiverse mm -hmm. um, or ADHD or anything like that. We didn't have the pharmaceutical solutions to it. Mm -hmm. And in where I come from, this sort of very Calvinist upper middle or middle class uh, family that descended all from ministers and priests and, mm -hmm. and religious fanatics who had to flee England to come over here. Those are the first Metcalfs to come over to this, this continent. Um, and that's all, you know, that's those genes, you carry those down, even no matter what you think. Um, mm -hmm. And so it just wasn't acknowledged. It was thought of as a, you know, if he had trouble at school, it was just a phase he'd get over. It. So I'm just, I've written this book trying to solve that problem. Are you finished? I'm finished for the second draft and I feel like I'm finished. I know I have to do some more work. I have to get it in front of a, of a good literary agent who can, who can tell me what I need to do to get it in front of a publisher. Well, as soon as there's no more COVID, if that ever happens, I have a literary salon I was telling you about, and I would oh, love you to come and read from your book when the time Oh, comes. sure. I'd be happy to. I'd love to. So, so have you been staying close to home? Have you, did, you, did, did your son do school online? Is he doing it? He, went, he did virtual school uh, one semester, then they got him back in class, and then they were virtual again. Now he's back in class some oh, wow. days, and some, depending on how the wind is blowing, they are either virtual or in class. And I've stayed very close to home, very good. I mean, I go to the grocery store. Uh, I have not, you've eaten in a restaurant once. Well, yesterday was my first time in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think I've eaten in one restaurant, mm -hmm. but it was next to a window Yes, uh, that was open. <laughs> and so have you avoided COVID? Have you and your son avoided COVID this time? My son has magically and mysteriously, and somehow magically and mysteriously, I got it. The Omicron seems to have, you know, you can you can catch it whether you've been boosted or not. I've been vaccinated and boosted once, trying to get boosted again. Oregon is a little reluctant to to, to jump on the bandwagon with second. Boost. I don't get that. Okay. Not either. How did you How did you get it? I don't know. I have no idea. I, and you I, didn't get it from your son who was I didn't going get it from my son who who was actually goes to class but he's mm -hmm. very studious about masks and I'm I'm wearing a mask everywhere I go 
So mm -hmm. I don't know how I got it. It's possible. My brother lives with me also. Mm -hmm. And he had just been in a clinic having a hernia operation and had just returned for, and it returned from Los Angeles prior to that. And he got it too. So it's mm. possibly that he picked it possible that he picked it up coming back from Los Angeles, although mm. he's good about masking and his, he was visiting his kids. Uh, so, and they are, but the Omicron, lots of people that I know got the Omicron. Absolutely. Who had been vaccinated and boosted and were careful and you still got it. And you know, so how was it for you? How was the- Very mild. I, was, I felt like Thank I had head flu for one day and then for two more weeks, I was just had a, a little bit of a scratchy cough and nothing else, but I was isolated. I mean, my, my son had his half of the house. My brother had his quarter of the house and I had mm -hmm. my third of the house. And we didn't mm -hmm. know Mike, Mike's trying to eat my shirt. Uh, it's hanging over the back of, uh, of the chair. Uh, so I was really isolated. And that was the hardest part was just, I didn't mm. get to see Mike. Mike had Mike, my son Julius had to take Mike for a walk. Uh, I didn't see my, uh, Julius because he would leave food at my door, knock and run. <laughs> we, did the whole, we did the whole nine yards. Well, that's amazing that he didn't get it with two of you having it in the house. That's pretty amazing. Well, as, as soon as I tested negative or positive, uh, he went into complete lockdown and he's really a, a, a dictator about it. And he wiped everything in the house down and uh, wouldn't, allow, you know, wouldn't allow me out of my room, wouldn't allow Roy <laughs> out of his room. He's, yeah, so it is, but I, it's, it, it, it's all his his doing that he didn't get it because he's just so careful and so studious. Well, that's excellent. And so you use the time in lockdown to actually write this book. You wrote this book during lockdown? I started it before and then dropped it because I just, it was such an emotional experience mm -hmm. to try to go back through my brother's life and his suicide and try to remember how I had failed in loving him enough which is not true. I mean, he would have, I don't know. Somehow there's a sense of when somebody commits suicide, it kind of rips a hole in your universe if you were close to them and maybe you're related to them and you love them. Uh, because there's, I, I think for everybody, there's a sense of what could I have done differently or what could I have said that might have saved him. And the truth is probably nothing. But I don't know how we love people enough to keep them alive, but so, suicide runs on both sides of my family. So, um, yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah. Yes. Been, so you, been, you know, you know, not, not as intimately as a brother, but an aunt and an uncle. And yeah. yeah it's yeah. so I empathize. I, I look forward to reading your book. Um, yeah, so I tell so. us, I, 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 Mark, I hope you'll come back and do this again because I haven't yeah. gotten to the master. I haven't gotten to the maestro. I haven't gotten to twisted sister and I know it's dinner time for you. So I want to respect I that. Do, I do have to go because I've got to feed Mike and I've got to feed my son. Okay. So I, I want, but I'm happy to, this has been very pleasant. So I'm happy to come do part two, if you, if you like. I would, I would love to have you back. Tell us how we can see the documentary because I'd love to watch it tonight. It's on the YouTube, uh, YouTube, uh, New Yorker documentary films has a New Yorker magazine has a, a YouTube channel. Okay. You go to YouTube and type in Mark Metcalf character. Character is the name of it. Okay. Mark Metcalf, Vera Brunner, Sung, uh, B-E-R-A. 
B-R-U-N-N-E-R hyphen S-U-N-G. She's the director. Uh, it will, it will, you can find it on YouTube. And watch I'll, it. I'll get the link and I'll put it in the liner notes so that everybody can find it. Thank you so, so much for doing this. It was so lovely to meet you. Thank you. It was lovely to meet you. Quite a charming conversation. I appreciate Thank it. you. And have a wonderful dinner with your son. Thank you. And you too. Well, yeah, if you're going to have dinner, whatever you, whoever you eat with. Uh, my son, it's his birthday. We're having okay. birthday dinner. Oh, yes. yes. Today's his birthday. Happy yes. birthday. What's your son's name? Harry. 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 Good. Harry. Harry. Happy <laughs> birthday, Harry. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Harry. Happy birthday to you. That's Happy lovely. Birthday. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, darling. Yeah. Bye-bye.